Hey, everybody, this is Brooke, and I am excited to let our listeners know, especially those of you who might be working on a memoir, that I'm co-leading another six-week intensive this spring called The Heart of Memoir, starting on April 5th and going six consecutive Tuesdays. I'm extra thrilled because one of our teachers is Kiese Lehman, who wrote the memoir Heavy. And if you listen to this show, you know that I reference Kiese a lot. Uh, he is the author of the memoir Heavy. I've long admired his work, who he is as a person, as well as an author. Uh, so the fact that he's teaching for us is a huge coup and something you don't want to miss. Uh, and also teaching is today's guest, Ashley C. Ford, who wrote the critically acclaimed award-winning memoir, Somebody's Daughter. And after you listen to this episode, I think you're going to want to take a class with her. She is absolutely incredible. We also have Joshua Moore, who's written two memoirs, Sirens and his latest, Model Citizen, and Anna Q, the author of the beautiful memoir, Made in China. Linda Joy Myers and I love teaching these courses, love co-leading these courses, and we'll be teaching alongside these memoirists this spring as well. It's called The Heart of Memoir because we know that the way to move readers with your memoir is always through the heart. So join us to learn craft through that context and with a roster of seriously incredible teachers. We hope you'll join us. You can check it out at www.magicofmemoir.com. And thank you. Grant, I'm excited about our show this week because we have the fabulous Ashley C. Ford joining us. And for those who are not familiar with her or her new book, Somebody's Daughter, it's among the memoirs that probably got the most buzz in 2021 and continuing. Uh, it was on all the watch lists endorsed by Oprah and Ashley's mentor is Roxane Gay. Uh, and it's just been the book that everyone is reading. And so I, of course, read it. <laughs> and, and actually, the hype is all that. I loved it. Uh, so when I was thinking about our theme, I thought about what impressed me the most about what Ashley has done with this book. And it's two things. Uh, it's how she shows up to champion for herself in this book. And it's also about how she models forgiveness. Uh, so very quickly, for the listeners sake, a little context about the book. It's about many things, but at its core, it's about the absence of her father, uh, because he was in prison for a rape crime that he was guilty of basically her entire upbringing. And Ashley is grappling with that and all the ways that it affects her life, which are multifold, and all the ways in which her life unfolds without his presence. So Grant got me thinking a little bit about these books that get attention for a certain aspect of what they are, like in this case, her father's absence, the books about a girl who grows up without a father because he's not there. But it's also about so many other things. It's about friendship, mothers, grandmothers, identity, race, desire, longing, loyalty, um, and I, I also think that's what I love about it, you know, because it does transcend so many themes and manages to corral them in a way that not too many memoirists are successful at doing. Yeah, it definitely captures the expansiveness and the entanglements of life and, and how we all contain multitudes. Uh, so it's my kind of book. And like you, I, I often think that some memoirs um, can be too tightly focused on a single theme, you know, as if they're almost written with a hashtag in mind. You know, in those books, not to say they don't have their place, but but I just I just love books like this one that that capture this fuller and and all the contradictions that go into to to a, a full life like that. And 
you know, one image just I, I will I will remember this image the rest of my life, I'm pretty sure. So I wanted to, to share it because I do think it speaks to what the whole book is about and what we're talking about now. And um, Ashley says that one day when she was a child, her grandmother dug a hole in their backyard in Missouri and, and there were several garden snakes kind of slithering around and intertwined. And and when Ashley asked her grandmother what they were doing, she replied, they're loving each other, baby. But then her, her grandmother then poured lighter fluid into the hole and lit a match and tossed it in. And the snakes squeezed together even more tightly as they burned to death. And her grandmother said, these things catch fire without letting each other go. We don't give up on our people. We don't stop loving them, not even when we're burning alive. And and that's Ford's emotional state through much of the memoir. She's trapped in a household bearing the brunt of her mother's fury while also pining for her father, who's been in prison ever since she could remember. And so the memoir charts her journey towards figuring out who she is. And that's that's one thing about it that really appeals to me is just figuring out who she is within all, this whole entangled emotional landscape. Um, it's really a, a coming of age story. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm so glad that Ashley talked about that scene, you know, later on when we have her in the interview. Um, and, and the fact that really the book in some ways was built around that scene, which is not at all surprising, because it is probably the most arresting scene in the book. Uh, so powerful. And coming of age narratives have a strong gravitational pull for writers in general. I, I say that every other memoir I read probably is a coming of age memoir. Uh, and But there's a challenge with coming of age, and that's how to make it universal. You know, how do you draw out themes that are resonant since the child narrator doesn't reflect in the same way that an adult narrator would? And I think this is where Ashley really excels. Um, I, I actually had a synchronistic experience reading Somebody's Daughter because uh, I was also reading I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Dr. Maya Angelou. I read it right before I read Somebody's Daughter. And um, I, I hang out sometimes with Piper Kerman. She's my neighbor and she has her finger on the pulse of all of these prison stories, you know, just uh, for obvious reasons, since she's the author of Orange is the New Black. And so she told me about Ashley and she's like, you have to read this book. Um, and then I had this experience of reading Maya Angelou and Ashley C. Ford uh, unexpectedly, like I said, back to back, and then later found out that Ashley was deeply influenced by Maya Angelou and that that scene that you just shared, Grant, was one of those scenes that I totally felt the echoes of Maya Angelou in her work. And so it just got me thinking, and I wanted to say this out loud, you know, because I think there's a lot of writers out there who are worried that another person's voice might taint your voice or affect yours in some way. And I just thought this is evidence that if there was any doubt about it, that that's a false fear. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's just not going to happen. You will just pick up so much goodness from emulating, uh, being inspired by the writers that you love and admire. And Ashley C. Ford does not sound like Maya Angelou, but the echoes of it are there. And it's this amazing scene. So I love that and um, everything about it. And and Grant, I was curious, have you emulated anyone's work to the point of feeling like you've been influenced by them um, and to what end? Absolutely. And I, I, I'm glad you mentioned this because I used to feel like I was cheating when I emulated other authors, you know, that I was I was imitating them and not being myself. 
but I think it's it's the way to learn and, and especially getting your voice right on on the page you know is so difficult so I think I think you captured it there like how Ashley has her own voice but there are echoes of other people's voices within that and that's the way I think of voice that it's something it's not singular I think sometimes the emphasis is all about the uniqueness of voice on the page but but I think it's more like you're singing in a choir you know you're harmonizing your voice uh, to others and, and letting them their voices come through you so you know yeah I've emulated a ton of authors Raymond Carver Marguerite Dura Lydia Davis Dostoevsky even going big like that Dennis Donchin Teju Cole Robert Polanyo Natalie Sarrow you know I could make the list it goes on and on because all these authors are from different chapters or eras of my writing life which is actually really fun too to think about that I should say this it's not just a voice I'm emulating but really a sensibility a, a way of being in the world and I think what I look for most in the authors I emulate are authors who write to a to a character's contradictions you know who who understand that living is a very messy and imperfect affair and and also the author gives their characters you know even the most flawed characters the grace of forgiveness you know I'm thinking in particular of Dostoevsky or Dennis Johnson who I've emulated and they somehow find a way to imbue their most even their most flawed characters with with deep and sympathetic souls Hmm. Yeah. And I, I, for me, I think that's one of the things that shines through in somebody's daughter more than anything is how Ashley forgives. And it's not a need to say, I forgive you, uh, you know, rather she's giving her characters, particularly those who've transgressed so much grace and in giving them the full manifestation of who they are on the page, then she gives them dignity. And this is true of her dad, for sure, um, but also her mom, who definitely hurts her, um, and boys who hurt her. And she doesn't compromise herself in the forgiving either. And I think that's powerful, because I was thinking about Eve Ensler and the interview I did with her. Um, and it's an archived show, if anyone wants to go back and listen. And she was just adamant about the fact that we don't have to forgive. It's not the job of the victim to forgive. Um, and I'm very on board with that, especially when it comes to assault, you know, rape, murder. But here, Ashley is also having to understand the full scope of the human who her father is and seeing him as a full person who's deserving of her love and her forgiveness, um, but not asking the reader to forgive what he did. Right. And that is very skillful. Um, I hope our readers will take books like these as lessons in showing uh, because the forgiveness is shown in her actions. It's not her telling us that she forgave her father and then explaining why. It's her walking through the scenes of loving her father despite everything. And then you see the forgiveness there, but it's just it's not uncomplicated. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how as readers we're likely to understand so much more deeply when something is shown instead of told. I think, I think that's because we get to be a part of the drama and by being part of the drama, we can understand and make meaning of things in our own ways. Uh, sometimes even without language, whereas telling tends to keep us, you know, one step away from things. Um, and I'm thinking here, of course, of the old, the old mantra show don't tell, you know, which is one of the oldest rules of writing. So it's, it's something to be mindful of when you're writing. I think there is though a place for telling, of course, but you're, but you're right. This memoir is a good mentor text, I think, because of its powers of evocation. And that's especially important when dealing with situations and characters that are as complicated as these. Yes, totally. And so with that, um, let's get to Ashley. She has a great interview in store for all of you. And we will be back after this shortest of breaks.
Welcome back, everyone. I'm so thrilled to have Ashley C. Ford on the show today. Ashley is a New York Times bestselling author of the memoir, Somebody's Daughter, which was published by Flatiron Books in June of 2021. And Ford is the former host of the Chronicles of Now podcast, co-host of the HBO companion podcast, Lovecraft Country Radio. She lives in Indianapolis with her husband, poet and fiction writer Kelly Stacy, and they have a little dog named Astro Renegade Ford Stacy. And Ashley, you've also guest edited for all kinds of brilliant publications like Elle, Slate, Teen Vogue, New York Magazine, New York Times, and on and on. And I just can't say how happy I am to welcome you. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. And I, I mentioned to you before we started how much your book touched me. And, uh, you know, you've spoken about how you wrote this book because you had to and not so much because you wanted to. And I find this to be true with memoirists often. You know, it's something that I'll hear um, from my students. So what advice do you have to other writers who might feel this way, who are confronting the had-tos and maybe feel at least sometimes like they'd rather not? <laughs> you know, one of the things that always gave me... Please excuse my dog. There's Astro. Right in the background. You hear Astro. He, as soon as I say, Astro, Go, give me Astro. that. I'm like, please give me Lammy. Um <laughs> Uh, one of the things that really got me through the process of realizing that I was not going to be able to just set this book down and set this story down and not move forward with it, um, the thought that gave me a lot of comfort was that I didn't have to publish it <laughs> just because I needed to write something or get it out or just because I, I had a feeling or a thought didn't mean that that was something I was ready to share. And that was okay. That was perfectly okay. Um, I think what happens with an artist is that it is really hard to work on something, to work and work and work and continue to work and feel like at the end of all that work, you don't want to share or you're not ready or you're not in a good place to share. But it's always good to ask yourself the question, just because you've got to get it out doesn't mean that you've got to get it out into the world just yet. That's so interesting. I've never thought of my work quite like that, but I'm going to ask myself that question next time I write and see how it affects me. Ashley, so much of what's written about your book and what reviewers seem to focus on centers on your dad being in prison for most of your life. But of course, because he, he wasn't there, the book is really about his absence. And in that way, it's, it's sort of not about him or it's, it, or it's about him in, in such a peripheral way. So when you set out to write this story, how did you grapple with that fact? And do you have any feelings about the father story being such a focus of the attention on the book and when so many other things, you know, carry equal or more weight in the book? You know, I think the reason why it seems like, you know, the book isn't really about my dad and um, it's not as focused on him, I think, as a lot of people expect is because the book is about my dad being in prison for 30 years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for 30 years, uh, a parent being incarcerated and being gone may not have an everyday impact in your life. They may not even have a weekly, monthly, or yearly impact in your life, but their absence is evident in your interactions with the parent who is 
still there, who's still parenting you, Mm -hmm. your interactions with the siblings who also don't know who he is or uh, who he has been. It's the, the markers of that absence come up, whether it's top of mind for you or not. And the feeling of not being protected, of not being loved, of not being wanted, are those things that just come from not having a father in the house or having a father who's incarcerated? Not necessarily. But do those circumstances contribute to that feeling of being unprotected and unsafe and uncertain and in in a certain way unloved? Absolutely. And so the story of me is inevitably wrapped up in the story of the absence of my father in my life. Like there is nothing going on in my life that I'm writing about in this book that is not touched by his absence, that is not marked by the silence around his absence. So yeah, I, I think it I think it makes sense to me. <laughs> And that ended up being ultimately good enough. Mm. I feel like uh, these issues did have equal weight and I feel like they were represented um, with equal weight. Yeah, I think it just also speaks so powerfully to the power of absence. Um, So thank you for for all of that. And, you know, I want to say something about your influence um, by Dr. Maya Angelou. And I recently reread I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. I was teaching it for a class we're doing called Feminist Foundations. Uh, And I read it literally the next book after reading your book. And this was before I knew any Thing about you, right? Like, mm-hmm. obviously, we de- we we uh, dive in and do a bit of research and preparation. And I saw some echoes of her work in your work, you know, in terms of the storytelling and insights and things like that. And in particular, there's this incredible scene in the book, your book, um, that anyone who's read it knows, where your grandmother digs a hole and you peer in there, and there are these snakes slithering around inside. And this scene was noted in your New York Times review as well. And for me, that was one of the ones that was reminiscent of Maya Angelou. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you could tell our listeners about that scene and about the layers of meaning that you build into scene when you're writing memoir. And if there's anything to say about, I know why the cage bird sings, welcome that as well. Well, I wrote that essay. As a matter of fact, um, the piece that that particular scene um, is one of the first things I ever wrote that made it into the book, that made it into this full story of my life. I wrote uh, the essay that that scene comes from um, when I was still in college. It's the first thing that I ever had published online. And I remember when I was writing that scene One of the reasons why I decided um, to go there was because I had this amazing professor at Ball State, Dr. Jill Chrisman, who talked to us about what she called a crab shell essay, um, where we were writing about something um, soft and vulnerable, and it had like this hard exterior around it. And I wanted to build this scene where, you know, I'd already established that I had a certain relationship with nature as a child and with the animals in nature. 
Um, and it was a place that was very soothing and solitary for me. Um, I got a lot of pleasure from being alone in nature. And I felt very friendly and almost familial with the creatures that I encountered in nature. And very suddenly, uh, my relationship with nature and specifically with these garden snakes um, is confronted with the reality of my human existence and the ties, the familial consciousness and, and ties that come along with that, as well as um, the violence that seemed inherent in just living in a body. If I was going to have a body, then I was going to be hurt over and over and over. And that felt true in my human world. And it did not feel true in my solitary, you know, sort of fantasy nature world. And very quickly, those things um, confronted each other when my grandmother explained to me the dynamics that I was expected to hold up in our family, um, dynamics of self-sacrifice and loyalty and love. And her way of showing that to me was by um, setting the snakes that we just found on fire and watching them cling to each other and die instead of scatter and in any way attempt to save themselves. Um the soft underbelly, obviously, of that scene is that um, it's, it's, it's an attempt to directly or indirectly crush the independence of a child and, and, and crush the notion that uh, they are their own. I had to know very early that I belonged to my family um, and that I was meant to cling to them, even if it meant that we all perished under uh, the fear of running away, the lack of instinct to run away. <laughs> and so I, I, I wrote that scene um, really early on in the process before I was ever even thinking that I was going to write a book, but it fit so perfectly um, into the narrative that really honestly, the rest of the book is kind of built around it. It's a scene I'll never forget, to tell you the truth. It's it's kind of oh. seared in, in my mind, beautifully so, especially hearing you explain it. And I, I, I want to ask you about forgiveness, because your story is a story of forgiveness. Uh, your father is guilty of the crime that sends him to prison, and you write so many touching scenes with him and about him. And your mother is a complex character who at points, you know, is really tough on you and who does some things that I think most readers would agree would merit you needing to forgive her. Um, the book feels like it's it's showcasing forgiveness, actually, kind of like a model for readers for how to show grace to people despite their failings. So I was wondering, was this already an orientation you had toward your parents or did the book help you get to the place of forgiveness? Um, I think... I had a false sense of forgiveness that I had definitely applied to my relationships with my parents. And my book helped me to both define and reach a more authentic uh, forgiveness, uh, a real forgiveness. I think um, the false forgiveness that I started with 
was really just, I am deciding not to be mad about this. <laughs> I am deciding not to be angry. I am, I am deciding that I, I don't have access to that feeling because I do not want access to that feeling. I am just not mad. That's just not how I feel. That's not who I am. Um, and then I started writing the book and I started being forced to confront things in my past and in myself that I hadn't wanted to confront. And one of those things, especially being that um, I had major, major uncomfortable uh, feelings about anger. I, I don't think anybody loves anger or like loves being angry, uh, but I hated it in myself because. I thought that my mother's anger was what made her hurt us when we were kids. And I was afraid of what it meant for me to have that anger in me or a rage in me where I might lose control and hurt innocent, vulnerable people. I, I was terrified of that. And so I just tried not to be angry ever. Um, not a pushover, but but not angry. But while I was writing this book, um, and you have to recount these things, and you have to write about them, and and in a way that hopefully is fair, uh, where you're not turning anybody into a hero or a villain, which is really hard to do if you have not processed your anger at that person, at that behavior, at that action that they took, at the way that that choice that they made still affects your life. So yeah, I had to get really mad and let myself have that being really mad before I could forgive my parents. And the new forgiveness, the real forgiveness is less about whether or not I'm angry at them and more about the fact that I have given up on the idea that it was going to be different. It's easy to for easier, not easy. It is easier <laughs> to forgive my parents when I'm not holding on to some fantasy of who they should have been and what my life and childhood should have been like. When I let go of that fantasy, that thing that doesn't actually exist anywhere, it's just something that I'm holding on to, um, then I can forgive them in reality. And, and, and that allows for us to have a relationship. Right. Wow. You know, you mentioned fantasy and you mentioned villains, and that's a great segue to my next question, which is about superheroes. <laughs> I know mm. that you're into superheroes. I am. <laughs> yeah. And it seems, I mean, I'm imagining that that informed your book. And so I'm wanting to ask you about that. In one interview, you wrote that you didn't want your memoir to have any heroes or villains. And in another interview, I saw you shared that you actually believed when you were little that your words had superpowers and that you had the power to harm someone or change the course of history. So could you talk to us about this love of superheroes and how it might have informed the book? And if I mean, I'm assuming it did, but if not, how it informs your life? Absolutely. Um, have you guys seen the show Invincible? Gosh, I haven't. I don't think I have. It's okay if you haven't. It's a show on Amazon Prime. Um, I am, I'm not necessarily suggesting it because I got to tell you, I actually only, um, could get through the first episode because I'm a, I'm a big baby 
about certain kinds of like uh, gore and stuff like that. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a cartoon and uh, it's uh, a dad who is a superhero and his son is like wondering when his superpowers are going to kick in. Like they're supposed to kick in at a certain point. Eventually, um, towards the end of the episode, the kid is at his job. He's had like this super rough day. He actually got like beat up. Um, and he goes to throw the trash away and he throws, goes to throw the trash into the, uh, dumpster and the trash flies off into space because his, his superpowers just kicked in. <laughs> and to me, that is what it felt like to go through puberty. One of the things I was thinking about when I was watching the first episode of this show was I was like, oh man, like this is a weird way to think of being a superhero. I know that there have been superheroes who have parents who are superheroes. Like that's that's a legacy thing. That's a uh, a Marvel history thing. It's it's everywhere. It's in DC. It's it's everywhere. Um, but there, I, I it made me think a lot about the fact that superheroes in general have this moment where they get the superpower. It just, it's there. They didn't ask for it in a lot of cases. They weren't trying to get it. It's its just, it is what happens. It's like one second they were like Logan, the next second they're Wolverine. Like it's just, it, it happens. Um, and the worst thing that could happen to a superhero at that point is that they are abandoned and confused with this new power. I feel like adolescence, which is a lot of what I'm writing about in my book, um, that time anyway, is a lot like getting superpowers and looking around at everybody around you, all of the adults around you, and basically being like, something's happening inside me. I can run faster. My body is changing. My, my brain is changing. My feelings. Oh my God. My feelings are so big all of a sudden. Why are they so big? It's just, it's that overwhelm of like the initial turn on of having superpowers. And the best thing that could happen for a superhero in that moment is to have another superhero show up and say, let me teach you how to fly. Let me teach you how to turn down the volume in your head now that you can hear everything. Let me teach you how to look and see what you're trying to see and not everything at the same time. Let me show you how to do something with all of this life that you have, that you've been given, this this fruit, this this juice of youth. Let me show you what to do with it. But instead, most adults just get annoyed. (laughs) (laughs) They get annoyed. They let, why are they so clumsy? Why is he so mad? Why does he... Why is he so clumsy? Because he grew six inches over the summer. Why Why is she so mad? Because one day she woke up and the fact that she had breasts changed her interactions with everybody around her. 
Why is she so sad? I don't maybe talk to her about it. Maybe because nobody asks her why she's sad. Maybe that's why. Kids are basically in my mind when they are going through that big transition into like that hard start of, oh yeah, one day you're going to be an adult. All they need is somebody to hold their hand in that moment. And what they usually get is swatted away. And I believe that they get swatted away because adults have, adults believe, a lot of adults believe that the only reason they don't do childish things is because they hate the child inside themselves. And the only reasons they don't make the same mistakes they did when they were teenagers is because they hate the teenager inside themselves. And so we have a bunch of little superheroes with a bunch of adults who have denied their superpowers and won't hold their hands and show them how to do it. Probably because nobody ever held their hands and showed them how to do it. So yeah, I know that's a lot and I'm sorry I get so Mm. rambly and you got me talking about superheroes. I loved it. But that's kind of how I see it. That's a beautiful interpretation of superheroes. And on that theme of holding hands, holding someone's hand and helping them, uh, Brooke and I watched some of the videos of you online, including some of your writer in resident stage presentations at Ball State University. Mm. And we were really struck by, you know, one of the recurring things was um, your generosity that we saw in the videos. And you, you talk in one about all the people who got you here. And I think it's so interesting to me because I've talked to so many writers and, and I think like writers tend to focus on the, the solitary aspects of writers and sometimes they forget that they're part of this larger community that actually helped them not only write but publish their, their work. And so I was wondering if you could speak to uh, maybe share an example of a moment or two where that community came to your help and held your hand. Well, I mean, first of all, I learned th- how to be that way at Ball State. Um, I had an amazing professor um, in the writing department named Kathy Day. Kathy Day had a whole class called Literary Citizenship, which was essentially about how to not just be a writer, but be in the community of writers and be supportive of other writers and creators and artists in the community of writers and creators and artists. Like That was part of my education um, in that place. And it was easy, I guess, to to buy it and and to buy into it because it was so evident in my life. I mean, Roxane Gay is the first person to ever publish my writing. Before Bad Feminist, before Hunger, before the New York Times, before any of that stuff, the first person to publish my work and to keep an eye on me and to look out for me, not just as a person, but as an artist, was Roxanne Gay. Now, I think a lot of people get the opportunity to have mentors, you know, and, and people who are on their side. But um, not everybody gets Roxanne Gay. I was going to say, you hit a home run there. I hit a home run, <laughs> you know, um, and without trying to just I loved her writing. I loved her work. And I was desperate to be connected with a Black woman who wrote like that. Honestly, that's what I wanted. I wanted to be connected to a Black woman who wrote like that. 
And the fact that she saw me and affirmed me and worked with me over the years um, to help me build a career for myself literally helped me build a career for myself. Like, what more can you do with that except turn around and try to do it for somebody else, many somebody else's, as many somebody else's as you can? That's the only way to say thank you. That's beautiful. I love that. Thanks, Ashley. And, um, you know, in closing, you write and speak about empowerment, you know, self-empowerment, self-actualization. And I think that's one of the things that held such universal resonance for me when I was looking at your writing and your teaching. And you're also incredibly inspiring. I've also, Grant, Grant mentioned, we listened to a bunch of your interviews. And you write about these themes in the book, too, like when you're taking photos of your body and learning to love your body. And I honestly don't think we have enough women role models who are owning self-love in a healthy way. So first, I wanted to thank you for that. And second, I wanted to ask you about how you got to that point and what the evolution of self-love looked like for you and how you might encourage other writers to embrace that as well. Um, You know, I grew up in a household uh, that was, despite the many body types present, was pretty fat phobic. Um, and the matriarch of our home, my grandma, who I love, used to say terrible things about her body and everybody else's bodies. And so I definitely grew up initially with the idea that I was not beautiful and not really having any big feelings about that. It more so felt like a fact, like I'm not a beautiful person. I'm not a sexy person. I'm not a sensual person. I am, you know, I everything physical about me is a flaw, you know, like that's what I was taught to see in myself. And I started taking those pictures and I was not seeing in those pictures what I had been taught to believe was there. I I was not assessing my body the way I had been taught to assess it. I, I wasn't assessing it thinking about what other somebody else, some mythical person in my head might think about it. I was thinking, what do I think about it? <laughs> you know, like, how does that feel to me? What is that beautiful to me? Can it be beautiful to me? You know, and I think that that's a lot of what I've tried to do since then is instead of catering to the mythical person in my head who prefers a certain weight and waist and, and, and measurement and, and all of that stuff. It's like, but what do I think? What do I feel about me? How do I feel about me? And it's not always good. Some days I'm like, you don't want to ask yourself that today. You, you might want to keep that to yourself. You might want to not get into how you feel about your body today, because I'll be honest with you and it'll be bad. You know, sometimes that's what it is. But most of the time, it's just a gentle and warm acceptance and love for a body that is that has seen me through every day of my life until this day and has worked to heal me and protect me and keep me sane and <laughs> keep me moving. Like, that's a lot of work. This is a lot of moving parts. And, you know, all things considered, my body is really doing the damn thing. Hmm. So I try to think about it that way now. And also just allow myself to see beauty where I actually see it and and not feel like I'm going to have to defend it to some mean person in my head. Beautiful, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you so much again for being with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you. 
We will be right back with today's book trend. Well, Grant, I thought it would be fun to talk about book covers for this week's trend because Ashley's book does fall into the category described by a writer on Spine Magazine as the colorful splotches trend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she wrote about these books, which include books like The Vanishing Half, Little Gods, Verge, and many others um, that, you know, while these covers are tell you almost nothing about the contents of the book they're also strangely alluring yeah i agree with the alluring part and ashley's book cover has the snake entwined into the cover design uh which points to that very pivotal scene we talked about in today's interview and i thought that was so cool because it is subtle yet prominent at the same time Right. And and I do think that's something we're seeing with these books. I mean, there are those splotches um, and they have lots and lots of color playing with color in interesting ways. And somebody's daughter, it's not particularly bright, but the colors that are mixed together are colors that might not obviously go together. And I obviously that's intentional, you know, that there's some kind of dissonance that will cause the reader to keep their eye on the cover, um, you know, to regard it a bit longer. Yeah, you know, I, I find it interesting with these these splotch covers, the whole genre we've named now, um, is that they're, you know, they're the opposite of minimalist in some ways. You know, they're bold and, and wild and eye-catching, and it also feels like some of these books are covering tough topics and, and are maybe hoping for crossover readerships. And so I was curious about these kinds of covers appealing to a, a truly wide reader base. And, and maybe that's what's making them a lasting trend. Yeah, I think that's a good theory. You know, I would say I'm definitely a fan of the splotch. <laughs> I really like them, um, you know, and, and they're book covers as art. And, you know, at the end of that Spine Magazine article that defined the colorful splotch, um, the writer wrote, not to fret, you know, if you're a fan of clashing color and swirly, vaguely human shapes, this trend is probably not going anywhere soon. And that made me laugh out loud because apparently I am a fan of um, clashing colors and swirly, vaguely human shapes. I am too, Brooke. Somebody's daughter, in fact, reminded me of Matisse's cutouts, which he did later in his life. And um, whether or not you're a fan of clashing colors and swirly, vaguely human shapes, (laughs) we are here for you week in and week out. So... Please join us next week for another exciting discussion of Right Minded. 